In preparing for today, Dr. Gardner asked me to speak kind of in the area of leadership. So let me start off by saying the hardest task you're ever going to be given as a leader, no matter where it is you serve, will be to lead yourself. I need a volunteer and uh, somebody here, and you have to be wearing a belt. Are you wearing a belt? You need to be wearing a belt. I need a volunteer wearing a belt. Come on up. Introduce yourself to the class. I'm Paul. There you go, Paul. Paul, I want to uh, focus onto the back of your belt, if that would be okay with you. I'll mind my fingers. This was a, um, an example that was shared with me by one of... Uh, just come this way. I want you to face that way over there. Uh, this was shared with me by uh, one of my mentors uh, who I got to know during the Aero Leadership Program, uh, Carson Pugh. So, Paul, at this moment, you're standing still. I have a bungee cord onto your belt. Do you feel it pulling you? No. I want you to take one step ahead and tell me if the sensation changes. It's changing. Yeah? (laughs) Paul, I want you to take two steps ahead. Do you feel... Is it it pulling more? It's pulling more. All right. Can you take any more steps? I could if I wanted to rip my belt loose. (laughs) All right. Well, then we'll stop right there, and I don't want to let this go. I there are things that hold us back in life. Things that hold us back when we want to follow God's leading. But we do not experience them, we do not feel their pull or the power until we try to move forward. While we're standing still, while we're not in movement, when maybe when we're not following God's will for our life or seeking after Him, we don't feel it. But I'm sure that's not the case for all of you, because you're here. And it is very hard to stand still in God's will while studying at a seminary. The story that we find today of Jesus meeting this man on the mat. We don't even know his name. I'm tempted just to call him Matt for simple simplicity. (laughs) Here is a man who Jesus finds whose life had knocked him down. Had literally put him on the mat. And there were things in his life that were holding him from going forward. It's probably very easy when we read that to self-identify with that guy in the map. Because honestly, I'm sure if we took a, a poll of the room that we have all had things in our life that have happened to us that have put us on the mat. And so here he see, sits for 38 years. He wasn't born this way. Something in his life caused this to happen. The paralysis, the, the weakness that he experienced had put him there. And he's sitting by this pool, the pool of Bethesda, it's near the Sheep Gate, named because that's where they bring the sheep through, to the temple for sacrifice. The, the, the pools were originally designed to catch water, rainfall, and that sort of thing, and it would be used for rituals in the temple and all this sort of thing. 
Uh, it was actually lost for a number of years, and the early commentators of the Bible actually thought John was making it up, this idea of the five um, covered spaces in it. And I thought, oh, he's just trying to be really spiritual and relate it back to the, the Pentateuch and showing that Jesus is there to fulfill it. No, they actually found this pool uh, about 100 years ago, and you can go and see it, and it's preserved there in Jerusalem in the northeast corner in the, in the, the Muslim quarter of the city. Uh, there was actually a church that had been built on it that knocked down in the 7th century and it filled in the pools and then another church was built on top of it as happens in these places and they built church to church and so they never knew where it was but, but there it is. And for some reason these pools of water although they were used for this you know, cleansing and, and that kind of thing had, had, people had started to believe that they could physically heal you. And we're not really told what that's all about. There must have been something to it because many people were told who had various ailments gathered and waited at this pool for it to be stirred. And so for years, this man sat. And I have to reflect on how desperate had his life become. For 38 years, he couldn't walk. The muscles in his legs had to have atrophied. He had no friends, unlike another man who was on a mat of a story we hear whose friends bring him to Jesus and tear the roof off the house to get him there. He has no one to do that for him. And so here he is, the best option in his life for a paralytic man is trying to win a foot race into a magic healing pool to get well. That's the best he's got. What has knocked you down in your life? What is the bungee cord that's been attached to you, preventing you from moving forward? Because in ministry, no matter what kind of context you're in, you will very soonly realize, if you haven't already, that you will be knocked down. It's not a matter of if, it's more a matter of when. And it's probably even more a matter of how many times. There's a lot of things that can knock us down, that can hold us back from following Jesus. A lot of times we like to focus on the external things preventing us from moving forward. Things that might be blocking us, preventing us. And you know what? And there's some real things there. But more often than not, what I have found is that the things that prevent us from following the will of Christ, the things that are the bungee cords in our life holding us back, the things that are knocking us down are things inside of us. And one of our greatest tasks as leaders is to over and over again, in the process of Christ identifying those things, those areas in our life where we need to grow more like Him, and do the hard work of growing in those areas. In his book, Leading Me, Dr. Steve Brown identifies a number of key internal things. He talks about unforgiveness that we have towards people, especially for those people who didn't ask for it, and especially for the people who don't even think they need it. He talks about fear, Fear of what could be, fear of what has happened. He talks about idolatry, the process of putting something else in the place of importance of Christ. Unconfessed sin, believing lies about ourselves or other things, or even lordship issues. For me, one of the greatest things that I have struggled with internally is actually in the area of idolatry. No, I don't have a graven image sitting in my house. The idol that I struggle with is myself. See, when I came here, I was uh, studying computer science. I was on a trajectory into IT, uh, data systems, data analysis, data mining, that whole area. Loved it. Good at it. 
But God called me into ministry, and I won't get into the whole story of how that happened, but he made it abundantly clear, as sometimes is the case, after nudging at me gently for many years and me not listening. But I got here, and I was very different from my classmates, or at least I felt that I was. I mean, half the people in my class were coming right out of an undergraduate degree in theology or religious studies. I remember sitting beside one person, and Dr. Wooden coming around to the class and saying to the person next to me, like, are you happy to be here? Yes, sir, I've known I want to be a pastor since I was 12. And he turned to me and said, are you happy to be here? No, sir, this is a battle that I lost. <laughs> right? And I, just, I felt different. I remember doing, I remember doing Myers-Briggs. Uh, with the personality and the testing, if you've done that with Carol Ann or others, and I remember getting the thing back, and it says, mm, Carol Ann, looking at John, you're an INTJ. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea what that means at that point. And she's like, well, let's just say that only 5% of uh, pastors in North America that have your personality type make it. And all I heard was, good luck. <laughs> and, and, and so this kind of followed me through, and it wasn't until a few years ago that I was at the Arrow Leadership Program and really started to dig into some of these things that were in my life. And I was sitting there one day after uh, some of my mentors, the people had prayed over me, and they prayed a word into my life, and the word was gut-foundered. It's a Newfoundland term, which means unquenchably hungry, that you just can't focus on anything else. When you're gut-foundered, you will eat anything, do anything to get food. Nothing else really matters, right? And they had prayed that for me, that I would have that kind of passion for the Spirit and for the Lord, that nothing else would matter in my life. And I sit there and I look down at my finger and I'm wearing this golden ring. This ring I was given was at UMB. It was given to me as a student leadership award, the top student leader in my graduating class. And I wore it every day because it represented and reminded me of how different I was and the path that I had come and the way that God chose me. Now, coming to Christ and, and our relationship with Christ is not about losing our individuality. Christ has made us different. He wants many parts of the body of Christ. We don't function if we were all the same. But I was resisting my life becoming more like the people around me. And that was a problem because they were becoming more like Christ. And I identified myself more with who I was and how I was different than rather identifying myself as being His. And so if you're ever in... The Muskoka area, there's a lake with there's a gold ring sitting at the bottom of it. Because I couldn't wear it anymore. We need to expect to be on the mat. We shouldn't be ashamed when life knocks us down, when we identify things that hold us back. We shouldn't be judgmental of each other. We shouldn't be surprised if people are wrestling with things. Because the sin that knocks us down is not what defines us. What defines us is the Savior that lifts us back up. And we see this idea through literature and, and all of the... I mean, Nelson Mandela, one of his quotes that I really love, says, do not judge me by my success. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. Or as the great poet and the fantastic album from 1997, Chumbawamba says, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. I get knocked down. But you're going to have that in your head for the rest of the day. I'm not going to sing the chorus. But as a leader, it's not a question of if you're going to get knocked down. The question is, do you want to get up? Or as Jesus phrases it to the man here, do you want to be well? And if I was one of Jesus' disciples with him that day, I would have tried to slink into the crowd for a cringeworthy question. Jesus, he's a paralyzed man sitting at a pool for people who are a whole bunch of infirmities trying to get well. He's been doing it for 30. Of course he wants to get well. But Jesus was pushing past the obvious and trying to get at the question of the heart. It's not a cringe-worthy question. It's a heart question. 
Because when we spend any time on the mat licking our wounds, we can get comfortably numb being there. It begins to feel like home. We make excuses. We don't believe that there could change. We don't even, couldn't even begin to imagine sometimes what it would be like without this thing that's grown part of us that holds us. But Jesus has a word for us. He said it to the man then, and he says it to all of us today, and he'll continue saying it every day to us on our journey. He says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Get up! It isn't a suggestion. It wasn't a question. It's not a throwaway, tweetable quote of the day. It's a command. It's an order. And it's for you, and it's for me. And it doesn't matter how long you've been laying on your mat. It doesn't matter if it's the first time you've been knocked down or you've been down so many times you've lost count. It doesn't matter if you've given up on all hope. It doesn't matter if you don't have the strength. It doesn't matter if you feel alone. It doesn't matter if you can't imagine a different tomorrow. Because Jesus can. And he has. And he's waiting for us to stand up, to pick up our mat and catch up. This man who had no hope, no friends, no strength, no future, does the impossible. He leaps to his feet almost in a surprised manner, snatches up his mat, and starts to walk. Not all life transformation happens like that. Sometimes it does. A lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times it takes a lot longer. But it's not a matter of a question of how long. It's not a matter of time. That doesn't matter because it's in God's time. The thing that we need to remember is that it is a promise that he is there for us. And there's so much stuff in this passage that we could talk about. And I'll just mention them off and you can use these as a full sermon series if you want coming out of this one chapter. I mean, we could spend another half hour talking about how Jesus as a leader deals with this man's physical needs first before he comes back to deal with his spiritual needs. Sometimes the pain of life drowns out the people's ability to hear the gospel. And we don't help people just to dangle a carrot. But we help them because Jesus commands us to, to love them. I mean, we could look at the fact here that chapter 5 doesn't belong right here in John. Uh, before, we see Jesus on this journey uh, from Judea to Galilee. And all of a sudden, in chapter 5, he's in Jerusalem. And then you go to chapter 6, and he's back in Galilee. Four or five day hike, maybe he did it. But this is, John's kind of saying, you know, uh, at some time this kind of happened. But John puts it here in this narrative. Because in chapter 4, we meet two people at the end of chapter 4. One is the woman at the well, the Samaritan. Probably all very familiar with the story. Jesus meets her. There is... A faith that builds an understanding of who Jesus is and people come to a salvation, her and her village. And then he moves a little further and he meets the Roman official who's there. Sorry. And the Roman... I'll, I'll say it a little louder. Say it. <laughs> Siri lets me know I'm getting a little too theoretical. And he meets the Roman official. And the Roman official says, my 
my son is sick, he's dying, Jesus says, go, he'll be well. And in both these cases, we're presented an example of people who responded in faith and their spiritual and physical needs were met. But not this man. This man does not show any faith. He doesn't even know Jesus. As soon as he finds out, the first thing he does is he turns him into the authorities. The other thing that's here is, again, another whole great sermon, maybe not one you're going to preach in your local churches, but man, this guy just experiences the power of God. He hasn't walked in 38 years. It is a miracle. He runs into the first two religious officials that he meets, and they say, excuse me, you're breaking a law. And it's not even a law. It's just something that's in the Mishnah that was helping him try to keep the Sabbath. And the, I mean, you don't have to go into it. But how many times do we as leaders miss God at work because it doesn't happen in our little narrow box the way that we think it should or according to our plan or our timelines? So much there. But we don't have time to go into all of that. <coughs> what I want you to take away today is this one question. It's not the question, are you on the mat? Because we all know the answer to that. Yes. We all have things in our life, whether we realize it or not, that are not in line with the way that God desires us to live. The real question, the real question that I want you to ask yourselves, to think on today, to think on this week as you spend time with our Lord, is this. Do you want to get well? Because in Christ there is healing, in Christ there is freedom. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us, loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither fears of, for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. The road to being well, the journey of disconnecting the bungee cord to allow you to walk further, to faithfully follow God wherever he is leading you, is not easy. We're told over and over again it will be hard. But in Christ, there is a promise. There is a promise of healing. There is a promise of love. There is a promise of community. And you don't have to do it alone. So as the Lord continues to say to us day and day and day and days of pick up your mat, get up and walk, I challenge you to ask the question, allow the Spirit to ask you the question, do I want to be well? I invite Dr. Gardner to come up and just lead us in a prayer. We've got our worship team in place too as we transition in our last song. But Let's take a moment and just imagine for a moment that the Lord is before us and asking us if you want to be well. Lord, we have invited you into this space and each of us is very aware of 
what tugs and pulls at us as we take steps toward you. For some of us, we may need to confess our sin. Not just to confess it, but to repent of it. Maybe harboring unforgiveness, which has caused a bitter heart. Help us to let go of that person that's caused us harm. Trust them to you. Forgive them. Help us to let go of our fear. Fear of the future. Or even the present. Help us to let go of our own self-confidence. Acknowledge, Lord, that you're the only one who brings confidence. Speak the word into our lives, we pray, to get up, take our mat, and to walk. From this day forward, 